0: In your bulletin, this is just a a reminder, there's a prayer force alert by Open Doors Ministry, which is ministry to the persecuted church around the world. And this is simply a prayer guide which will help you in your prayer times pray for different issues like the pastors in in other countries, refugees, discipleship, women, believers, and then praying through the watch list. And so I just include that for you for your uh, uh, equipping as well as for... Uh, maybe the opportunity to pray around the world. One of the great opportunities we have in this day and age with all the information we get is we can see what's going on in many other places and to pray effectively for those who are suffering persecution uh, I- around the world at this time. Speaking of that, uh, you know, Cuba has not exactly been an open nation at all under the dictatorship of the Castros, and uh, even though some of the political relationships have thawed somewhat, and yet uh, many Cubans have fled to the United States, fled to the state of Florida over the many years, over uh, 50 years that that country has been under the thumb of a dictatorship, a communist dictatorship. And one of those name was Alexander Morales. Alexander Morales was a windsurfer. Uh, he even got paid a little bit of a stipend by the Cuban government because he, he uh, competed in the Olympics some time ago in windsurfing. I didn't even know that that was a competitive sport. Uh, but, you know, windsurfers like a surfboard with a sail on it, and now they have sailboards, which the sail, you hold on to it. But he was an accomplished windsurfer, uh, was born in Cuba. Part of his family fled to the United States early on in the dictatorship of Fidel Castro, And Alexander Morales really, really wanted to go. And so he spent two years studying the winds and the tides. And uh, in his practice windsurfing, uh, one day he took off. He and two other guys, uh, one of them actually hadn't even thought about it. He was just out windsurfing with Alexander Morales and said, hey, I'll go with you. And uh, they windsurfed to the United States, 90-some miles Uh, It took them 12 hours, and they were finally picked up outside of Key West by a fishing boat heading back to Key West. But there were three young men who windsurfed to the United States. And afterwards, uh, uh, Alexander Morales reported that he didn't know if it was such a great idea because they were hounded by sharks. Remember, a surfboard is only about this wide and about that thick. And uh, they were hounded by sharks and about wore them out physically to spend that much time on that wind surfer, so it took them over twelve hours and uh, didn 't consider that till much later after he arrived that uh, he actually survived with his life when the, everything was working against him. Uh, but I was thinking about this young man and thinking about children at risk and the apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, has been, been uh, warning the children that at the Church of Galatia. That they are at great risk. And we're entering chapter five of this great letter. And in chapter five, he is talking about the gospel of grace applied. Remember, Galatians can be divided very evenly into chapters one and two, which is the gospel of grace, which is defended, chapters three and four, the gospel of grace explained. And now chapters 5 and 6, the gospel of grace is applied. So we come to the practical application of the theological doctrine that he has sketched out for us in chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul refers to believers as children, and he refers to them as children of the free woman. Remember last week we looked at this allegory that the Apostle Paul uses, a story out of the Old Testament to illustrate, he's illustrating uh, how we're declared righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses Abraham, Sarah, and and, uh, Hagar. And uh, Sarah is the free woman, Hagar is the slave, and she illustrates the slavery. If you were born in the slavery in that time, you were always a slave. So her son by Abraham, Ishmael, who is basically the father of the Arab nations, was a slave his whole life. Whereas Sarah had the son of promise, the miracle son, and <clears throat> she was uh you know barren and plus very, very elderly, and Abraham was old, and uh she had this son, and he was the child of promise, which represents grace, not the law. Uh, Ishmael represented the law and the bondage of the law, and the law could not save us and <clears throat> Isaac represented. Grace by faith, and because Abraham and Sarah were walking by faith, and God fulfilled that. So we come to chapter 5, and the Apostle Paul knows that these believing children, if you will, he calls them children, it's a term of endearment, they're at great risk. And so this is a polemical book. This is an argument the Apostle Paul is advancing. And uh, what is at stake here is the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we stand at the end of our days here on earth? How do we stand before a righteous, holy God and be found acceptable before him? That is a fundamental question every person needs to answer. How am I going to be found acceptable to a perfect, righteous God who cannot even look upon sin, cannot... Uh, excuse any sin, and it's because it's through the Lord Jesus Christ who imputes his righteousness to the people who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our advocate, he is our intercessor at the right hand of the Father, he gives us the Holy Spirit to lead us in the truth, and so to go away from that is basically going back into bondage, the bondage of the law. Remember the purpose of the law. And Wes Craig, our elder, who took the burden of preaching through chapters three, uh, three and four, uh, reminds us that the fact the law just simply shows us how crooked we are. Remember that it is it is a it's a, a ruler that shows us how crooked we are. It doesn't fix the crookedness of the human condition of our our, our uh, depraved state. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, corrects us and makes us acceptable before God. And so we come to this passage, and remember the Apostle Paul has been battling legalism, battling legalism, what we call legalism. There are false teachers coming into these churches or this church in southern Galatia, and they were torturing the true and perfect gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and and making it a heresy in the sense they were trying to add the Mosaic Law or the Law of Moses, which was given to Israel. And uh, last week we we looked at that, and the Apostle Paul used that story uh, out of the Old Testament to illustrate it. But in this passage, in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5, we're going to see that we are at risk. Every generation is at risk of falling under the bondage of the law, going back into legalism, uh, the There are believers who substitute the religion of circumcision, which this is more than just a a biological, physical act. This is representative of a bondage of the law, and they sacrifice that for a relationship with Christ, which is by grace, unmerited favor, to claim both. And that's what the Galatian believers were doing as a personal philosophy or approach to life, was to straddle the fence, which leads to confusion, joyless living, and downright danger. And so if you are in that position, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, you risk losing your freedom, your fortune, and your function as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is very strong. He says, you are windsurfing with the sharks, and you are in great danger if you are toying with that. Uh, Warren Wiersbe uh, wrote that legalism does not mean a setting of spiritual standards. We need to understand that. It is not the setting of spiritual standards. The Apostle Paul is going to clarify that in these next two chapters. <clears throat> it means worshiping these standards that we've set and thinking that we are spiritual because we obey them. See the difference? There's all about motivation. It also means judging other believers on the basis of these standards. The Pharisees had high standards, and yet they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. That's from Warren Weersby. We need to understand that. One of the great themes through the book of Galatians is the theme of freedom. The theme of freedom, and I think we as North Americans misunderstand freedom because we're very individualistic, and we think it means that I can do whatever I want. And the Apostle Paul will be very clear that that means you are slipping into licentiousness. In other words, I'm my own boss, I'm my own God, I can do what I want. And that's licentiousness, whereas legalism goes into the other ditch and says that I am keeping track of these do's and don'ts, therefore I'm a spiritual person. And so the danger of legalism is it reduces Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts, and that's what the false teachers in Galatia were doing. They said, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you also must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. You must keep the moral law, and then became all of these lists of how they are to live out the Christian life. Now, the uh, believers in Galatia, for the most part, were probably... Gentiles, there were also some Jews living in Galatia, but Gentiles who had no background in the Old Testament, and so they had a background in pagan religions, and so this was appealing to them this idea that, oh, if I do these things, then i 'm more spiritual and i 'm more acceptable to God. Dos and dontism has the advantage uh, that we don't need any wisdom in looking at our own lives and evaluating where we 're at. Uh, we want to Uh, try to relate personally to a demanding and loving God, and yet the legalism, these laws, do not do that. And so, first of all, uh, the Galatian churches had fallen under the spell of false teachers, and the Apostle Paul was standing firm against them. And he is telling them that as children you are at risk, and uh, you need to live as a free person under the Lord Jesus Christ and you're at risk of losing your freedom look at verse 1 again with me it was for freedom that Christ set us free that's the claims of liberty the claims of liberty we are delivered from the wrath of God if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ these things are true of you in fact Lewis Berry Chafer in his great systematic theology lists some 33 results of our salvation, of our justification being declared righteous because of what Christ has done. These are just a few of them. But we are delivered from the wrath of God. We are delivered from the power of sin. We are delivered from the curse of the law. We are delivered from the tyranny of Satan and his demons. We are delivered from the fear of judgment. And we are delivered from an accusing conscience. In fact, in Romans, which is a larger expanded uh, work on the same subject that the Galatians were dealing with, Romans 10.4 says, For Christ has accomplished the whole purpose of the law. All who believe in him are made right with God. And so we have freedom, we have the liberty to live and walk in a new kind of power, and that's the power the Holy Spirit gives us to live lives of righteousness. We don't manufacture that in our flesh. We naturally don't do that. And we obey with joy and delight. We love and give ourselves to others. Uh, we have immediate access to God the Father. We have the liberty to relax in his presence, knowing that all it took to please the Father and make us acceptable has been fully accomplished in the, by the Savior at the cross of Calvary. And also he continues to be our advocate, our great high priest in heaven, So even after becoming a believer in Christ, when we sin, we have this great high priest who is our intercessor, our advocate. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, even when Satan accuses us before God the Father. And then the second part of verse uh, one, there are two commands, the commands of liberty. Look at verse 1 again. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, because of that, here's two commands, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Keep standing firm, firm. do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. This idea, this picture of physically standing firm. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, the high line of Montana where Highway 2 goes across The northern side of Montana. Once you get past the Rockies on the eastern side, and uh, we call it the windy side, you get to Haver, Montana. And uh, I just read the other day that the wind stopped blowing and everybody fell down. (laughs) They're so used to standing firm. And that's the picture for believers. You know, we've got a headwind. The headwind is false doctrine. The headwind is legalism. The headwind is all the pull of the world, and we have to stand firm. And that's the military picture of one who's in fully geared up for the fight and is standing firm, is holding their ground. And that's the picture there. Then the second command is, do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Uh, well, you know, some of you have had cattle, and maybe you've even been exposed to yokes that fit on a team of oxen to pull something. Uh, that's the picture for the, these first century people here. They understood what a yoke was, but it was a burden. It strapped you in, and we don't want to be under that yoke, that burden of slavery again. And that's all it does, that legalism does, that these false teachers were pursuing Believers no longer, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we no longer need the external force of the law to keep us in line, to keep us in God's will, because we have the internal leading of the Holy Spirit. If we are in his word, if we're sensitive to what God is doing around us and in us, we will be sensitive to him. And that's why I think it was St. Augustine said, love God and do what you want. That was the summary of his theology. And it sounds kind of grating at first, but tell you think of it, if I truly love God, I will be doing the things that he guides and leads me to do, and he will empower me to do those things. So do not risk losing your freedom. Secondly, you risk losing your fortune in verses 2 through 6. And there in verses 2 through 4, there are consequences that will be suffered if we go back under the bondage of the law. There are four consequences. What is our theological position? And here we see the word circumcision used over and over again. Again, I ask our worship team, sing us some hymns about circumcision. We couldn't find any. And uh, not a popular hymn, by the way. But uh, remember here that here the, the... The idea of circumcision, it was representative of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish law. Remember, God gave circumcision to the Jewish people as a mark, as a symbol of his covenant with Abraham, of this covenant people that God was fulfilling this promise. They were the chosen nation, and this was the mark, the symbol of it. And that's why when the Jewish people would look at the Philistines, they would call them uncircumcised pagans because they knew, okay? And so, but here, the Apostle Paul uses this as a theological position, not a surgical procedure, even though symbolically the procedure was important in the nation of Israel. Later on, he says it doesn't matter to God whether they're circumcision or uncircumcision. A type of religion claiming salvation by works of obedience to the law is this idea, a theological position. Paul identifies these four consequences suffered by one under the law system. Look at verse 2. Here is the warning about losing our fortune. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. He will be no benefit to you. We're basically denying the cross that Christ died on, denying his resurrection that it was sufficient for our eternal well-being. In Ephesians, Paul says that we share in the riches of God's grace. In Philippians, and again in Ephesians, we share in the riches of his glory. Romans 11, we share in the riches of his wisdom. Ephesians 3, again, we have the unsearchable riches of Christ. In other words, they are infinite, not finite. I saw that uh, eight wealthiest men in the world represent half the world's uh, money. And uh, an amazing statement. I don't know how true it is, but I thought, even with those eight guys, it's still finite, isn't it? Their riches are finite. Yes, it's a lot, but it's finite. But with the unsearchable riches of Christ, they are infinite. They go on forever and ever. Also, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, according to Colossians 2. We are complete in him, in Colossians 2.10. Our riches in Christ... If we deny those things, we are in great danger of losing our fortune. We come a whole debtor to the law in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. Remember, that's the bondage under the law, that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. Uh, Most of us, I think, in our day-to-day lives try to keep, our nations and our state and our, our, our municipalities' laws, okay? When we lived in Garland, Texas, uh, the traffic was pretty pretty massive all the time around the, uh, the metroplex. We called it the Metro Mess, Dallas and Fort Worth. And uh, one morning I was on my way to work, and it was, there wasn't any, hardly anybody out. It was really early, like 4 in the morning, and the light turned red, and I just blew right through it. And as I looked over down the street, I saw a policeman. And sure enough, he came up and pulled me over. Even though I had kept all sorts of laws for the years previous, and I could say, Mr. Policeman, I kept, I haven't done that before. I still got a ticket. Amazing, isn't it? And that's the point here, is if you're going to live under the law, you better keep every punctuation mark of the law. You cannot not do that. The, our theological position there. And so, we. secondly, we become a debtor to the whole law. Third, in verse 4, we come severed or alienated from Christ. Look at the first part of verse 4. You've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. And interestingly, in in the uh, Greek language, which was the original language that Galatians was written in, he's using this play on words that he's talking about a surgical procedure, and then he's illustrating it in a spiritual way that you will sever yourselves from Christ. You are alienated from Christ. When we turn to the law and accept the law as a meritorious work, uh, it provides dire implications for the Christian. And the Galatians were called on to consider what they were doing, listening to these false teacher. Anyone seeking justification by the law had been alienated from Christ, and such a person would not be living in the sphere where Christ was operative. The King James Version is helpful here on this verse, and it reads in the King James, Christ has become of no effect unto you. If you're depending on the law, you're denying that Christ paid it all. And there are many slices of evangelical Christianity that live that way. They deny that we can be assured based upon the word of God that we will go to heaven. They proclaim that it's dependent upon your good works and how you live each life, your life each day. That is a treadmill that we don't need to be on because God's word declares we are assured of our salvation by the declaration of God himself. Fourthly, in verse the end of verse 4, it says, you have fallen away from grace. And this creates great problems for those of us, uh, at least apparently those of us who believe in the security of the believer. Look at the end of verse 4 there. You've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And some automatically take that as you can lose your salvation. Well, that's a misunderstanding of that verse. And first of all, uh, yes, it is a difficult verse, but we do not uh, develop major doctrine based upon hard to understand verses. I've said it before over 150 times in the New Testament. We are assured of our salvation based upon belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do one of the, one of the fundamentals of interpreting scripture is to make sure we use the weight of scripture to develop a doctrine. And the early church fathers understood that. The apostles understood that. And that's why it was salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. The reformers understood that. Salvation is only in Christ plus nothing. Uh, First of all, some observations about this verse. We need to think through it carefully. Some observations. First of all, only Christians can fall from grace. Nonbelievers can't fall from grace because they're not there anyway. Only Christians can fall from grace. They received his gospel in chapter 1, verse 9. They received the Holy Spirit in chapter 3, verse 2. They are repeatedly, by the Apostle Paul, called brethren, which is a term reserved for Christians. You look in Paul's epistles, brethren is always Christians. Christians addressed here, only one who has received grace can fall from grace, okay? Second observation is falling from grace is not the loss of eternal life. Whether waking or sleeping, believers shall live with Him. First Thessalonians five ten. Even when we are faithless, Second Timothy two thirteen. We are sealed by His Holy Spirit. Ephesians one thirteen through fourteen. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Ephes- or Romans eight thirty eight through thirty nine, and so. Falling from grace is not a loss of eternal life. Thirdly, the third observation on this second part of verse 4 is falling from grace is the loss of experience of grace in your daily life. This gets down to the experiential level that leaving the grace system for the law system will have severe consequences when you regard your justification and sanctification as partly dependent upon your performance. When you're depending on your performance for your being declared righteous before God and for this part called sanctification, for this uh, being declared righteous in our lives or growing in righteousness, uh, it is an experience that we lose our joy over. Uh, One writer said, when you take the torch of the flesh, you scorch the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I grew up in a church like that, even though I was a little pagan, then became a teenage pagan, and then a young adult pagan. Uh, I grew up in a church like that, where it was all about uh, superficial legalities. I remember the Constitution and bylaws was as thick as a phone book, and it detailed every kind of sin you could be involved with and why you couldn't be uh, a, a kindergarten teacher if you happened to partake of one of those things. And uh, it, was, it was a burden. It was awful. That's one reason I remained a pagan so long, is I thought, if this is Christianity, I want nothing of it. There was no joy, there was no liberty, there was no wonderful relationship with one another. Everybody was suspicious of one another. Who wants to live like that? The church, as Larry Crabb said, should be the safest place on earth. And it really should be. But when we start measuring other people's spirituality based on these false lists... It becomes a very dangerous place. And the Apostle Paul knew this. Grace manifests itself in three ways, through our justification. Back when you accepted Christ as your Savior, you were justified. You may not have felt anything, you didn't know anything, but the Bible declares that you were declared righteous by God at that point, not based on your performance, but based on what Christ has done. His death, burial, and resurrection, you experienced grace. You were declared righteous. Secondly, you were sanctified. You're in the process of sanctification here from this point where you were born again, as we say, to the point you go to heaven, and that's being saved from the very power of sin. And then glorification. When we enter heaven, Andrew and Gio are experiencing that right now. They are experiencing a release and a freedom from the very presence of sin. Can you imagine? No Middle East conflict, you know, no mess in Washington, D.C., no problems, no protests, none of this, but experience perfect peace. And here, chapter 5, deals with sanctification, this part in between, whereas legalistic believers lose their grip on life and their joy and grace in sanctification then he states a contrast in verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. And so faith results in righteousness. George Mueller uh, wrote that faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in which it is humanly possible. Faith begins when man's power ends. And we don't like that because we have skills, we have gifts, we have uh, our own background and our intelligence and all of that, and uh, we want to use those things, and that's good. But when it comes to the issue of trusting God, when we come to the end of our own resources is when God really shows his grace Faith is simple, Holy Spirit-enabled trusting of God that he will deliver the condition of complete and utter righteousness in your life as he has promised, that he is working in your life. Flesh works are no matter to God, like he said here. It doesn't matter, this circumcision, no circumcision. It doesn't do anything for you. And when a Christian remains faithful, it's an encouragement to other believers. When we live in the joy of the liberty of our salvation in Jesus Christ, it means that we are affecting other people. Now, Fanny Crosby, some of you know her. She was a great hymn writer, and she was blind from birth. And Fanny Crosby wrote I don't know how many thousands of hymns, but instead of wallowing in self-pity, she held on to her faith in God, and she wrote some fabulous hymns in her life. When she reached old age, somebody told her, that had she been born in that particular day, there was a medical procedure which probably could have restored her sight. But instead of being bitter, Fanny Crosby said, I don't know that I would change anything. Do you know that the first thing I'm ever going to see is the face of Jesus? (laughs) Unquote. Boy, that's faith. That is really looking forward with great joy. Thirdly, not only do you risk losing your freedom, risk losing your fortune, but children at risk, risk losing their function in verses 7 through 11. And there's a number of questions we ask here. Verse 7, who hindered you in the race? Look at verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Um, You may remember uh, Olympics of a long time ago. There was a runner from uh, the Northwest here, actually out of Oregon, Mary Decker Slaney. And in a 3,000-meter race, she was running well, and she was bumped and tripped up by Zola Budd. She was the barefoot runner from South Africa, if you remember. And she was knocked out of the race. And that's the picture here. Although in the Greek times, in the first century, when they would have a long-distance race, they didn't have an oval track, and they didn't have running lanes, but they would put a stake way out there, and the runners would run in mass out around the stake and come back. And this is the picture here is who hindered you, who tripped you up? Because if you got bumped out of the way and fell down, you were no longer in the race. And the Apostle Paul is asking, who hindered you? He's causing and he's asking us to think, what is the draw to legalism? Is it somebody else whispering in our ear? Is it false teachers someplace whispering at us or preaching at us? Verses 8 and 9, what effect is it having on your life? Look at verse 8. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And, of course, the pictures from the kitchen, when you add yeast to the dough, it affects it all. You can't just keep it isolated in one part. Verse 10, where will it lead in life? I have confidence in you, that confidence in you in the Lord, that you will not adopt another view, but one who is disturbing you will bear judgment, whoever he is. We start getting the sense, The Apostle Paul is really righteously angry. (laughs) He's really getting there. And uh, where will it lead in your life? And in verse 11, he takes it personally. Why am I being persecuted? But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Remember, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. He knew the old Mosaic law. And yet he wasn't preaching that circumcision or the law was required for salvation, only grace through faith, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he causes them to think, why am I being persecuted? The word <clears throat> uh, the, the word there, uh, stumbling, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished in verse 11. The word is, uh, we get the word scandal from that Greek word, scandalon. Is the word a stumbling block, a trap, a snare of the cross? The scandal of the cross is grace. And that's why legalists always attack grace churches as saying, oh, you guys are easy believism. Uh, the Lordship salvationists attack grace ministries and churches, people who believe in grace by faith plus nothing. And that's the idea here is that the cross is a stumbling block to many. Uh, But people have found the gospel message which proclaims man's total inability to contribute anything to his salvation, and they find that offensive. Thus, the cross marked the end of the law system and rendered circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law unnecessary. So we are challenged uh, in our own uh, Christianity and how we follow the Lord. Uh, Do we have spiritual standards? Yes. Do we have personal convictions? Yes. And we should, but yet we do not depend upon us those to make us righteous before God. In a recent uh, NCAA cross country championship held in Riverside, California, 123 of the 128 runners compete, completed or competing missed one of the turns. One competitor, his name's Mike DelCalvo, stayed on the 10,000 meter course, and he began to wave the fellow runners to follow him. He was only able to convince four other runners to go with him. Uh, Ask what his competitors thought about his mid-race decision not to follow the crowd. DeColvo responded, they thought it was funny that I went the right way. (laughs) He was the only one, one of the only ones, to run the race correctly. In the same way, our goal is to run the race correctly, by grace through faith, to finish the race marked out for us by Christ, not to get bumped off of the course. We can rejoice over those who have the courage to follow us. We can ignore the laughter of the crowd. I have fought the good fight, the Apostle Paul has said. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, Second Timothy chapter 4. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for your great grace and for the fact that we can contribute nothing to what you've already done on the cross of Calvary. We can contribute nothing to our own glorification, and we just follow you in our sanctification as you rescue us from the very power of sin. And Heavenly Father, thank you for blessing us today with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray for any here who do not know you as their Savior, that they would recognize that just being a good person is not going to make it, that the Lord Jesus, they have to depend on you for by grace we are saved through faith and that alone. In Jesus' name, amen.